2: Hello, welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litbeck, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Robinson Woodward Burns about his book, Hidden Laws, How State Constitutions Stabilize American Politics, published by Yale University Press in 2021. Dr. Woodward Burns is an assistant professor at Howard University. Hidden Laws explores the relationship between both state and national constitutional development debates and reform. A sprawling study of American constitutional history, Dr. Woodward Burns' book, shows how the federal government often deferred to state constitutional reform as a mechanism for dealing with national constitutional controversies. From banking to slavery, women's suffrage suffrage to welfare, Dr. Woodward Burns' book explores the myriad of ways constitutional controversies were debated and resolved in the United States. Dr. Woodward Burns, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: So, I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this topic? You know, why you decided to study it.
1: Certainly. So, uh, I began with uh, interest in a specific document, the Pennsylvania Constitution of seventeen seventy six. And I ended up writing on it as part of my graduate work in Philadelphia. I was reading about Philadelphia during the revolutionary period and the early national period. And I found that this state constitution that Pennsylvania had drafted, one of the first state constitutions ever drafted, was a pretty radical document. The drafting process had an inclusive um, uh, a sort of process. That the franchise was wider than any. Uh, in the uh, United States at the point. So uh, non-property-owning men were able to vote uh, for um, for or against the proposed constitution. The document itself was fairly radical. Uh, it included a provision, one which was ultimately redacted, which said that maldistribution or unequal distribution of property was uh, uh, an inhibition of democracy, was a threat to democracy, and uh, that that uh, proposed Um, clause would have allowed uh, uh, redistribution of land by force um, to uh, those who didn't hold property. And so it was sort of this, uh, it presented a different uh, model of democracy, uh, one that was uh, sort of based on economic equality, as well as a broad franchise uh, that reflected uh, different sorts of values from those uh, that uh, we saw in other state constitutions of the time, which more uh, featured checks, not only between the different sorts of branches of government, Uh, but also checks on the popular voice and vote. Uh, And so I was curious uh, how this sort of document uh, ultimately came to be and why the federal government uh, and other uh, framers of state constitutions, why um, those framers ultimately rejected the Pennsylvania model. Uh, And so um, in looking at that and and really looking at sort of the federal rejection of, of Pennsylvania's model, which was, again, sort of more egalitarian, had a broader franchise, had, oddly enough, a unicameral state legislature. Looking at the rejection of that, uh, got me sort of asking questions about how state constitutions uh, affect national politics. And so that's, that's what ultimately launched the project. And from there, I ended up reading about the 411 other attempted state constitutions and found this sort of broader pattern of state constitutional reform, thousands of state constitutional amendments proposed and passed, uh, and uh, sort of wrote the book that sketched out this pattern from uh, the revolutionary period to the current one.
2: And one of the things that is sort of central to your book um, is a concept you call conflict decentralization. And so can you explain for our listeners uh, what this means and why it sort of became uh, one of the organizing principles for how you look at the state-national relationship. Certainly.
1: So, the United States Constitution is an extraordinarily unusual document relative to other national constitutions. It's the world's oldest constitution. It has the highest bar to amendment out of national any national constitution. You need two thirds of both houses of Congress to approve of uh, an amendment or to to have two-thirds of states submit an amendment, and then you need three-quarters of states in their legislatures or conventions to ratify it. And that's almost impossible to do uh, since the founding period, since the uh, framing of the Bill of Rights and ratification of the Bill of Rights. There have been only 17 successful amendments to the Constitution out of the 11,790 amendments proposed. So what we see is it's very hard to amend the Constitution. And... Uh, it's fairly hard to get sweeping sort of reinterpretation out of the uh, federal courts. Uh, So constitutional amendment, constitutional reinterpretation are very difficult. And one of the effects of this is that people who seek constitutional reform, especially on things like citizenship, voting rights, even things like labor and welfare rights, will instead turn to the state constitutions, which have much lower bars to amendment, and generally have state courts which are much more open to constitutional reinterpretation. And so when we see this pattern in which uh, reformers are rebuffed at the national level and instead seek state constitutional reform, this is what I call conflict decentralization. National political controversies ultimately successfully get resolved by the states. Uh, And it's this pattern that I think has ultimately helped preserve the United States Constitution over the last two centuries. Uh, you know, while the federal constitution has really been unable to grapple with a lot of the central constitutional issues, the states have sort of picked up the slack.
2: And I think it's sort of a, it, it was one of those things where when reading this that I don't think as someone even as someone who is a constitutional historian, I on one level knew this but didn't sort of know it um and then as i'm reading this and you know and i'm i'm thinking about you know your con your concept of conflict decentralization reading through the entire book i'm just like oh yeah this keeps happening and i don't know for me it was like sort of a almost like a moment of realization where i was just like this is a kind of really important thing that i feel like no one is really, like, explicitly engaging with. And so I really, um, one, I appreciated the book, period. Um, But the concept of this conflict decentralization, I thought, was really useful for thinking through this history.
1: I I appreciate that. Uh, It's an idea that is something that it's an idea that other people have approached before so you think about say uh justice lewis brandeis who uh famously uh said it's quote one of the happy incidents of the federal system that a single courageous state may if its citizens choose serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country that laboratories of democracy thesis is something that we've sort of ping-ponged around for a long time uh, but i don't think at least to my knowledge i don't think there's been uh, a book-length monograph trying to unpack whether that theory is is true at least through uh, at the in the constitutional sense, uh, and ultimately and maybe unsurprisingly, the fact that we've had 411 attempts to draft state constitutions, 255 state constitutional conventions, and 144 successfully ratified state constitutions suggests that states have been better able to do a lot of the constitutional work.
2: Sorry, my the uh, like I said, Zencaster uh, likes to go a little weird, and the mute thing was being a little weird. Um, <laughs> all right, so pick that back up. Um, so. To begin sort of in the timeline that you set out in the book, in the Revolutionary Era, um, you look at uh, sort of the creation of, quite literally, the first constitutions and stuff like that. Um, And so how did state constitutional framing help resolve emerging issues in the newly forming national um, or federal government?
1: In the first chapter of the book, I the first substantive chapter, I talk about how state constitutionalism in the revolutionary era and through the framing of the federal constitution guided the framers of the federal constitution. So there were a few sort of big constitutional issues. One was this question of legislative sovereignty and design. Uh, the debates over taxation and representation hinged on this question of Sovereignty of the legislature over the extent of Parliament's power uh, to exert uh, taxes over the colonies. And so this brought about this uh, sort of broad skepticism of unchecked legislative power. Um, In Pennsylvania, again, there's this 1776 Constitution, which has a unicameral legislature, which is checked by frequent and uh, open elections by having a sort of broad franchise, the Pennsylvania framers thought they might be able to successfully check a legislature and make sure that the people would remain sovereign. Uh, ultimately, though, um, that model uh, sort of faces pushback, particularly from John Adams, who favors the Whig model of government that Gordon Wood famously notes, uh, sort of favors checks uh, both uh, through a bicameral legislature in which an upper house can check the people's lower house and also a division of powers between an executive uh, and um, uh, a judiciary in addition to the legislature. And so Adams propagates this model through his pamphlet, The Thoughts on Government. Uh, it, he Adams is instrumental in shaping uh, the Virginia Constitution, which becomes in 1776 the counterpoint to the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776. And then Adams helps frame uh, the 1780 Massachusetts Constitution as well, providing a model for that, which is really sort of the culmination of this tripartite model of checks and balances, uh, as well as, as bicameralism. And ultimately by the time the federal convention meets that model, which has spread through almost all of the states becomes essentially the, the uh, expectation uh, or the, um, the sort of unspoken model for the federal constitution. So in the federal convention, immediately framers decide on bicameralism and a tripartite government. Uh, and in some cases, explicitly, they cite the success of this model at the state level. Uh, the other thing I talk about a little bit is the regulation of slavery and how, at the state constitutional level, we see limited abolition in a few cases. Uh, so, uh, Vermont's 1776 state constitution provides for abolition. But more, we see uh, interpretation through state courts of state constitutional protections of liberty and due process uh, as applying to enslaved people and a, a um, the uh, sort of initial constitutional grounds for freedom suits, particularly in Massachusetts in Commonwealth v. Jennison, the 1783 case, and uh, through some of the um, middle colon- or, uh, middle states, uh, we see these um, these um, state constitutional liberty protections as providing the grounding for gradual emancipation statutes. Uh, southern states, of course, don't extend these liberty protections or pursue as aggressively the gradual emancipation program. Uh, And so ultimately, what you get is a divergence between uh, different regions, between New England with emancipation, uh, usually sort of immediate emancipation, uh, at least provided through uh, the courts, Uh, middle states providing for gradual emancipation statutes, southern states not taking that route. Uh, And effectively, because these states are able to uh, take these separate uh, approaches without interfering with each other's laws, the federal convention does not provide for a national regulation of slavery. Uh, Or national laws requiring states to recognize each other's uh, laws. And so, for example, in the Fugitive Slave Clause, you get this passive language about uh, returning fugitive enslaved people. It says that the person be returned to, but the federal government uh, is never explicitly in that charge, in that clause required uh, to engage in the return. And one of the arguments I make is that it's possible to have such sort of vague language in the the federal constitution because the states are stably able to regulate uh, slavery through these very different regimes, but ones that don't require a a sort of single federal regime. And so in that that first chapter, I try to chart out uh, both these questions of legislative design and over regulation of slavery that I think make it much easier for uh, federal framers to not really have debates or to have to tackle these central issues because they're able to defer to state constitutional prior to state constitutional framing on these questions.
2: And I find that really interesting uh, as a way of, you know, sort of engaging particularly with the topic of slavery um, and sort of, how it operates on a constitutional level uh, is looking at not just you know okay what is happening sort of legislatively um at the state level with slavery and then how does this sort of um you know transition into the national convention on in the creation of the constitution but so, sort of taking an even i would say Simultaneously, like broader, but just a sort of different view of looking at what is going on with the Constitution's very framing of government at a state level. um, And then how does this, you know, sort of set the table for the uh, creation of the of the Constitution? Because I think especially for listeners who might not be familiar with with this history as much um it, you know it's always important to remember that especially during this time period uh the united states is essentially um you know at right after the revolution basically 14 different nations it's one nation and then 13 different states that basically want to be their own nation
1: yes yeah i think that's right uh and it's especially important to understand that with issues like slavery for example so you know we have this Idea that because the federal constitution doesn't mention slavery by name, although it protects it through a few uh, fairly infamous clauses the non importation clause, the three fifths clause, the fugitive slave clause. We have the idea because uh, the federal constitution doesn't mention slavery by name that there wasn't uh, in American constitutionalism an affirmative recognition of slavery. But that's not the case. Uh, Throughout uh, the state constitutions, you see recognition of slavery by name either uh, in explicit abolition of slavery. Uh, As you see in a lot of the old Northwest states that enter the Union Ohio is the first one in 1802 that becomes a model for subsequent states Uh, it explicitly takes the abolition clause from the old Northwest ordinance or in southern states you see explicit affirmation of slavery and preemption of uh, abolition uh, through things like takings clauses which forbid the uncompensated taking of property uh, and expressly the uncompensated uh, taking of property in enslaved people. And so American constitutionalism expressly protected slavery by name. Uh, and it was only because the state constitutions did this that the federal framers uh, were able to essentially punt on the issue and not expressly mention the institution that uh, was so uh, you know, closely pr- uh, protected under American constitutionalism.
2: And so going forward in history, um, you look at the antebellum period um, throughout a couple of chapters. And one of the things that you look at is how throughout the antebellum period, the state constitutions would regularly, regularly sort of preempt, delay or even resolve uh, many national issues, uh, sort of within you know, this larger framework that you've set out. Um, and you know, the antebellum period, this sort of happens a lot as you show. And so what is going on? What are some, you know, some of the issues that you see this happening with?
1: Sure. So I'll give two examples and we'll stick with slavery for a second, and then we'll talk about the, the franchise again. Uh, so one thing, uh, that the States do is they regulate slavery in very different ways. Uh, If you look at the Missouri crisis, for example, Congress has the authority to abolish slavery in the territories, as well as in the District of Columbia, both of these issues prove extraordinarily contentious throughout the 1820s and 1830s. And so ultimately, um, Congress doesn't uh, move uh, after the Missouri crisis to uh, regulate slavery within the existing states, Uh, it specifies slavery below the 36th parallel. Uh, it should be protected under state constitutions, uh, that it should be abolished above that parallel. But ultimately, after admitting new states, it doesn't have the authority to recognize this. Uh, so Congress is really sort of trusting the states to uh, maintain this compromise to uh, ultimately protect slavery below the line, but Congress has no authority to to, um, to interfere or to make sure it happens after it grants uh, statehood to these uh, territories. Uh, ultimately, those state constitutional framers follow the bargain and they maintain that bargain. Uh, and They protect slavery uh, even years after um, admission uh, below that uh, the thirty-sixth um, uh, parallel. And so uh, you see, sort of the Missouri Compromise, which we tend to think of something as brokered in Congress, actually brokered through state constitutional design amendment. Uh, and sort of uh, maintenance by the state constitutions. Um, And so, you know, one of the things we think about is, is that federalism, sort of divergent northern and southern constitutionalism eventually caused the Civil War. What's perhaps remarkable is that it took until the 1860s for the Civil War to actually occur. But for that period between the Missouri Compromise and the 1860s, for most of it, really until the 1850s, the states were able to successfully broker very different regimes Uh, in ways that secured uh, national stability, albeit at the uh, cost of of the sort of lives uh, and well-being of enslaved people. One of the kind of lessons of that is that stability is not always a moral good, uh, but it is one of the things that state constitutionalism secures. Uh, The other example is about the franchise. So it's interesting that uh, you don't really see um, sort of widespread mobilization uh, or petitioning of Congress. For uh, reform for franchise laws in the 1810s or 20s or 30s. Um, it's interesting, perhaps, because um, entering that period in the early 1810s, uh, most uh, states impose something like um, uh, a property qualification or tax paying qualification on the vote. By the 1830s, that number sharply decreases so that uh, all states, almost all states, have gotten rid of property or tax paying qualifications. And this really preempts this issue from ever reaching the halls of Congress. Members of Congress understand that regulation of the time, place, and manner of elections uh, r- lies with uh, the states. And because the states are able to respond to petitions by working men uh, mobilized uh, trade unions for uh, petitions for um, repeal of these property and tax qualifications, because the states are so responsive, this issue, which is nationally pretty contentious across the states, this nationally contentious issue never actually reaches Congress. Um, And one of the lessons here is that if you want to understand national constitutional issues, but you only study, say, debates in Congress or before the Supreme Court, then you'll miss those really important issues which the states are working out on their own and that uh, never actually reach the Supreme Court docket or the congressional debates.
2: Yeah, and I think that last point in particular is so important that, you know, it's – the because of the sort of I would say not somewhat unique structure of the United States, um, you can never just look at one level of government. Um, you can never just look at the state governments. You can never just look at the national government. Um, they're always intertwined. Uh, and so and as you've showed throughout the book, um, the state level debates over constitutions are often ways of not just you know discussing you know purely local matters but are a way of uh discussing and remedying national controversies
1: exactly yeah and if you only look to national institutions or the records of national institutions like congress or the executive or the federal courts to understand these national issues, these national constitutional issues. If you only look to those records, then you'll be misunderstanding national constitutional issues and also how these institutions, these national bodies adapt or fail to adapt. Uh, Almost all of the constitutional work is happening at the state level. But if you ignore that, then you're missing almost all of the constitutional change
2: and one other thing that you look at in the antebellum era and and afterwards is uh black citizenship in the 19th century and so how did the relationship between state and national constitution constitutional processes um interact with uh black citizenship and sort of you know um both define and get influenced by the debates over whether or not Black Americans were, in fact, citizens of the United States?
1: That's a great question. So you see the federal government is, on this question, not so directly involved in the question of defining Black citizenship. There are no direct affirmations of Black citizenship in this period, uh, although you see attorneys general like William Wirt arguing for something like a a, a uh, immediate status or a a sort of uh, in-between status for citizenship for black people. Uh, But the actual regulation of citizenship happens primarily at the state level through uh, the antebellum period. And what you get is a pretty divergent kind of of, of regimes between Northern and Southern states. Um, So on matters of the vote, for example, you see that black men are enfranchised In the New England states, uh, with some exceptions, Connecticut and Rhode Island have stricter laws. Uh, New York has a property ownership uh, qualification for black men, uh, although it's not clear how closely this is enforced. Outside of those states, you don't see enfranchisement for black men, but you do see access to certain citizenship rights, um, uh, and those are really sort of worked out through state cases Um, There's one uh, in which uh, in Connecticut in 1837, uh, Prudence Crandall sues to have recognition for uh, her school uh, in which she's educating black children uh, in a a, um, a case called Robert's First City of Boston Uh, in 1850. Massachusetts recognizes uh, the right for black people to be educated in the state, albeit under equal but separate conditions. Uh, That's the for uh, the, uh, the emergence of that phrase. Um, and so you see sort of states at least in the north brokering something like uh, a, a, um, a sort of halfway citizenship uh, for black Americans. Um, now southern states are, are generally not extending this. They're regulating uh, movement of black people through things like black codes uh, and in some cases uh, through their state constitutions uh, and are mainly uh, trying to sort of preempt abolition. Uh, under their state constitutions, uh, again, through these clauses, which forbid uncompensated emancipation. So state constitutional framers are preventing, uh, future legislators from passing emancipation, gradual emancipation statutes, and they're preventing judges from being able to recognize freedom suits. And so you get this sort of patchwork, um, or a, a sort of two divergent regimes, I should say, uh, between Northern and Southern states, and this becomes increasingly contentious as we see movement uh, between these two regions. Ultimately, Northern states start passing personal liberty laws, allowing judges uh, to free enslaved people who are traveling north with their uh, owners, and so you get this uh, uh, debate by the 1850s over whether Northern states have to, within their own borders, recognize the law of Southern states, Uh, and this proves uh, immensely contentious. Uh, particularly in debates around things like the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Uh, But really, for most of the antebellum era, uh, you see divergence uh, and stability uh, in the regulation of Black citizenship and and rights.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And I think it's, it's uh, pretty important, especially for, you know, listeners who don't know much about Black citizenship during this era, uh, to remember that... Um, you know, as you're showing here, citizenship is this sort of multifaceted, multilayered um, status during this time period. It is not at all what we think of it to, as today, Um the uh, as you've sh- as you've shown and as um, other scholars have shown, you know, citizenship is something that is you have a state level citizenship. And and for the most part, that's what most people sort of in their everyday lives would have been thinking about when they talked about citizenship. And then you have national citizenship, um, which is a completely different beast um, and is much less defined, uh, during this time period, and so as you've shown uh, in your book, you know the relationship between you know this ill-defined national citizenship and this much more defined state citizenship uh, has a lot of ramifications for the status of black people throughout the nation.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, uh, and I, I think you're right to sort of describe it that way. A, a national citizenship is often underspecified. And it's not really till the 14th Amendment that you see uh, Congress trying to tackle this as a constitutional issue, uh, largely, again, in response to Dred Scott and the nationalization of the of the citizenship question. Um, it's actually President um, Buchanan who urges Roger B. Tawney to take on the citizenship question and resolve it uh, at the national level. But prior to that, uh, you really get resounding national silence on it. And effectively, states are left to regulate. Uh, citizenship in its many forms, uh, including things like voting, uh, rights uh, before judges, rights to move, uh, uh, and rights to movement, and things like that. Um, So I I think you're right to sort of discuss, uh, especially in the antebellum era, uh, citizenship at the national level level as underspecified and left to the states.
2: And one of the things that you know, I found interesting going forward in your book, um, is, you know, in the first part of, uh, the book and sort of us history, um, you see the States basically sort of, de- um, solving national controversies or what might, uh, had the potential to become national controversies through their own state constitutional processes, um, and the creation of different, uh, state constitutions. And as you show, um, In the sort of first half of the 20th century, you have a slightly different dynamic or at least a new layer to it where the national government starts to basically imitate state constitutional reform or at least attempt to. And so what's going on there?
1: So you're you're pointing to this really interesting period in the beginning of the 20th century in the progressive era, and it looks pretty different from the years before it. In the 19th century, you see at the national level, for the most part, constitutional inaction. Very few amendments pass. Between 1804 and 1913, you only get three amendments, and they pass in the short window, 1865 to 1870. They're understood to have happened in a period of emergency Uh, as uh, Reconstruction required rebuilding of constitutional rules. But then in the uh, early 20th century, in the progressive era, you get this second burst of amendments. In 1913, you get the 16th and 17th amendments, which provide for national income taxation, direct election of senators. And then uh, afterwards, you get uh, the uh, 18th and 19th amendment for prohibition and female franchise. And what's interesting about these is we we tend to think of these amendments as national innovations passed by Congress, imposed on the states. And uh, I don't think that story quite fully captures how we get this sudden burst of amendments. If you actually look back at state constitutional reform on these four issues, income taxation, direct election of senators, prohibition, and the female franchise, you see that state constitutional reform had made this the status quo on all four issues prior to the uh, ratification of the the corresponding amendments. So think about the female franchise, for example. Uh, When the 19th Amendment passes, uh, 40 states had already enfranchised women in some capacity at some point. And those women were willing to vote against members of Congress who wouldn't pass a corresponding national amendment. So ultimately, Congress was forced by the state constitutional reform to recognize the constitutional status quo that had emerged At the state level already effectively that 19th amendment was just recognizing what the states had already done and forbidding states from rolling back those protections uh, on the right uh, to vote for women Uh, similarly if you look at the 16th amendment and income taxation you see states are already trying to pass their own income taxation laws as early as after the panic of 1893 in order to increase revenue at the state level. And states face a lot of, of significant struggles actually figuring out how to collect income, especially on non real estate property, things like stocks and bonds, which are easy to hide. But through a lot of experimentation and failure, they present a successful model for the 16th Amendment. And ultimately, after the amendment's passage in 1913, you see the state and national uh, income taxation um, uh, programs working uh, together, sharing records, and sort of creating this interlocking system. Uh, Similarly, with the 17th Amendment and uh, direct election of senators, you see states experimenting with modes of direct election of senators, either through primaries or through general elections, uh, as well as using their initiatives, uh, which state constitutional initiatives start spreading in the progressive era to uh, force the election, uh, direct election of senators. Uh, And this ultimately uh, forces the Congress to pass uh, the amendment for direct election of senators. Same thing with prohibition. You see states passing prohibition laws. Uh, what's interesting about this case, though, is ultimately uh, advocates of a national prohibition amendment kind of jump the gun, and they pass the amendment before you really reach that tipping point where most states have uh, set up regimes to enforce prohibition. You see about half of states doing that, but uh, there are some wet states that are deeply opposed to national prohibition, uh, and those states refuse to comply with this national regime. Uh, because advocates of the National Prohibition Amendment moved a little bit faster than conditions would allow, uh, I think ultimately you see that backlash that brings about repeal of the Prohibition Amendment um, uh, a little over a decade after uh, the Prohibition Amendment had passed.
2: And I think the sort of um, switch in what's going on in the early 20th century is really interesting. Um, And I think it's also something that You know, if, for example, if our listeners are just, you know, not as well versed in, say, early 20th century history, in this history in particular, and they, you know, they know about the uh, creation and ratification of the 19th Amendment that gives women suffrage at the national level, um, just in the sort of vaguest of, you know, um, terms in terms of like what you learn in school, you probably don't know that. In most of the nation, women had already been enfranchised at some level. And when you learn about that and what's going on in in that sort of constitutional process, it puts uh, the 19th Amendment and that whole national movement in a completely different light.
1: Yeah, I I think that's right. Um, It. One thing to sort of highlight is that reformers who looked first to Congress, think, for example, about the National Woman Suffrage Association formed in the uh, immediate aftermath of, of, of the Civil War in the early Reconstruction years, petitioned Congress over and over again for the vote. And they found a few friends in Congress, like Congressman Henry Blair, who kept introducing uh, suffrage amendments. But ultimately, the National Woman Suffrage Association really struggled to capture a majority of Congress that was willing to vote for an amendment. Um, what uh, you get is then a pivot in 1893 when it, the organization allies with the American Woman Suffrage Association, and you get this new combined organization, the National American Woman Suffrage Association, which explicitly looks to the states first to reform the constitutions, grant women the right to vote, and build this national constituency of of female voters who can start voting out these congressmen who are opposed to a a national suffrage amendment. Um, The leader of the organization, Carrie Chapman Catt, by 1916 uh, has this meeting in Atlantic City where she gets together all the state level heads, they do the math and they realize that this threat has now become real and that they can actually start uh, threatening congressional incumbents. Uh, with um, sort of reprisal uh, and the the threat of uh, ejection if they start voting against the interest of their new female constituents that threat which she makes explicit uh, she says it to Woodrow Wilson Woodrow Wilson the next year says to Congress that it's time to pass the amendment that threat ultimately is what helps pass the 19th amendment uh, and so, one of the lessons here, if, if you look at female suffrage, is that just a lot of the work was done at the state level, uh, just through years and years of sort of grassroots organizing that made it possible later to pass a national amendment that really sort of recognized, protected, and um, sort of cemented uh, what uh, female franchise uh, organizers had already done at the state level.
2: And going forward into the latter half of the 20th century, uh, because you're book, I think, does a really good job of concisely going over most of U.S. history, which is really nice because it gives um, readers a really good view of this entire sort of process and how it changes over time. And so going into the latter half of the 20th century, how did uh, state constitutional reform react to a number of new national constitutional reform failures um which is sort of a something that you look at in particular where it's not necessarily just sort of national debates going on but failures on a national level to enact constitutional reforms that then just get um implemented at state level
1: yeah so i'll give two examples of uh sort of national inaction and how that ultimately prompts State constitutional reform in the um, in the second half of the 20th century, and the first—they uh, actually both deal with taxes, but in pretty different ways. Uh, so one is the poll tax. We tend to think about poll tax repeal as one of the great victories of the civil rights era, and in fact, there were sort of three major high water marks between 19. 19- 64 and 66, in which we see the national government moving against the poll tax. Um, so in 1964, the 24th Amendment uh, uh, forbade states from using poll taxes. Um, in 1965, Section 10 of the Voting Rights Act does the same thing. And in 1966, Harper versus Virginia Board of Elections uh, Supreme Court case essentially entrenches that. Uh, and these are extraordinarily important things in that they uh, give uh, litigation uh, litigation grounds for challenging uh, laws that would require a poll tax or something that looks like a poll tax. And so it, it's really helpful in presenting – preventing rollback uh, of – Uh, voting rights by the states. What's interesting, though, is that by 1966, when the Harper case passed, all but four states had already statutorily or constitutionally outlawed the poll tax. So again, the poll tax is largely inoperative by this point. And the reason for that is, again, through the work of state constitutional reformers. Uh, In the Great Depression, we see uh, the poll tax which uh, you know is um, usually one or two dollars in a lot of states southern states especially uh, is prohibitively high voters can't uh, pay the poll tax and this now includes during the Great Depression increasingly white voters who uh, make the constituents of a lot uh, make the constituency of a lot of New Deal Democrats so Huey long opposes a poll tax spessard Holland a member of Congress from um, Florida opposes the poll tax. And we see these sort of progressive New Deal Democrats, or at least New Deal Democrats who represent poorer white voters in the South, uh, working against the poll tax. The NAACP organizes against the poll tax. You have a lot of grassroots uh, organizing. uh, And ultimately, you start to get successful repeal through the 1920s, but it really picks up speed in the 30s and 40s. uh, So that Southerners no longer rely on the poll tax, and there's uh, these sort of southern white supremacists start grasping for other means to disenfranchise black voters, like the all white primary, which quickly gets struck down by the Supreme Court in 1944, uh, and uh, things like literacy tests, which grow increasingly Byzantine and increasingly ridiculous. So those are ultimately overturned as well. But the fall of the poll tax, which had really been sort of the tent pole. For a disenfranchisement going back to uh, the Mississippi uh, State Constitution of 1890, the fall of that tent pole kind of brings down Southern voter disenfranchisement, um, and that ultimately happens at the state level through this combination of, of New Deal Democrats trying to defend the right to vote from their poor white constituents, as well as uh, black organizers and grassroots organizers uh, trying to take down uh, laws that disenfranchise poor black voters. So that's the first thing. And again, the lesson here is that, uh, you know, national prohibition of the poll tax uh, is, is extraordinarily important because it prevents future rollback. But what it really did when it happened was just recognize what all of these workers had already done, these organizers had done in order to protect their right, uh, right to vote at the state level. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, which also has to do with taxation, uh, is the, you uh, In the late 1970s, early 1980s, you see this extraordinary backlash against uh, taxation happening at the state level. Um, There's this sort of mobilization in California, for example, uh, against um, uh, against property taxes. You see later in Colorado a similar mobilization, and this sort of reflects the broader shift right in politics as, as Reagan comes into office and as this small government conservatism becomes ascendant. Um, and so in Congress, you see members of Congress responding with things like a balanced budget amendment, which would require the federal government to balance its budget every year. Uh, And these balanced budget amendments, because budgeting is an extraordinarily complex process, these balanced budget amendments are dozens of sections long, almost as long as the full constitution itself. And they're pretty unwieldy and dysfunctional amendments. What you see instead, because these federal amendments never successfully pass, is conservatives instead start to look to the state level to uh, um, uh, pass tax limitation. Uh, amendments. And so you get one, uh, which is called the Taxpayers Bill of Rights in the mid-90s in Colorado. And it actually really hobbles the state government. Uh, the state starts to uh, cut into its funding for child immunization. You get um, outbreaks of, of uh, easily preventable diseases among children uh, going to public schools. And so this um, this experiment at the state level ultimately uh, turns out to be a failure. And, and Colorado kind of walks back. Uh, from that. But uh, that's another sort of um, uh, uh, scenario in which you get national inaction, uh, which ultimately prompts state action. And so, you know, even as, uh, through the late 20th century and, and into the current century, you see a continuation of this pattern of congressional inaction, inaction by the Supreme Court on key constitutional issues, which ultimately leaves the states to pick up the slack.
2: And I think. Um... Sort of that dynamic is, <clears throat> excuse me, let me start that over again. Um, I think that dynamic at play there in the latter half of the 20th century and just the process that's going on through throughout American history period has a lot of implications um, for our own contemporary moment. I mean, I find it's always interesting to me when looking at Um, any work of history or anything of the such um, just looking at it and saying like oh I I like this Um, it's another thing to be able to look at it and see so directly um, how what you're reading about in the past has developed and then is still influencing how things operate today
1: yeah I I think that's right Uh, so if you think about, say, uh, prior patterns in national constitutional change, amendments take these uh, extraordinarily, extraordinarily large coalitions to pass. You need two-thirds of both houses of Congress or two-thirds of the states uh, to pass an amendment. You need three-quarters of the states to ratify. Those things are extraordinarily rare. And even if if you just look at Congress, which is the lower bar, it's... Increasingly rare to see those huge congressional majorities. You do get them at certain points. Andrew Jackson came in with fairly large congressional majorities. The Reconstruction Republicans had huge congressional majorities, as did the New Deal Democrats. But over time, we actually see a change where these swings decrease. Uh, and so we're now in this era where it's really hard even to get past 54 or 55 percent majorities in Congress. Democrats right now hold the smallest uh, minority, uh, majorities in Congress that are numerically possible. And should Republicans retake either House of Congress in 2022, they'll likely face similarly small majorities. And so national constitutional changes is, is really hard to get. Uh, and this does two things. One is it, it probably empowers the Supreme Court a little bit more as Congress is increasingly unable to pass amendments. The Supreme Court now is, is sort of the sole reinterpreter of the Constitution, the sole agent of constitutional reform. But even so, we know that at least in, from political science research, Supreme Courts tend to be more bold in bringing about national change when they know that the executive is willing to enforce when Congress is willing to back them up with statutes. Brown versus board, for example, didn't happen in isolation, but happened with uh, an executive that was willing to, uh, again, back the Supreme Court's desegregation efforts, and with the Congress that ultimately eventually funded that. Uh, We're not likely to get this sort of unity and these overwhelming majorities at the national level anymore. What we're gonna see, again, is gridlock, dysfunction, hyperpolarization. And so at the state level, that's where most change is gonna happen. Uh, states they rely less on wholesale constitutional replacement. Now we see fewer state constitutional conventions meeting to draft new documents. Instead, what they're doing is piecemeal change through amendments and referenda. And so, in terms of being able to grapple with our sort of national constitutional issues, because Congress, especially, and uh, is so deadlocked, and because that deadlock prevents the kind of unity between the three national branches needed to achieve national change, I think. State constitutional change, and especially state constitutional amendment, is now really the primary way to vent uh, pressure for constitutional change that's emerging across the country. And so I expect this pattern will continue as national politics becomes less and less functional.
2: And so we have this uh, great book in front of us and I always encourage our listeners to become readers and go out and get the book for themselves. Once again, it is Hidden Laws, How the State Constitution Stabilized American Politics. And so we have this in front of us. What might we be expecting from you in the future? And this book came out not that long ago. So if you want to say I am just taking a much needed break, I will completely
1: understand. Oh, that's that's a great question. I'm already trying to sort of grapple with some of the questions that came up in writing this first book. And then one of them is just this question of dysfunction. Uh, So, you know, we've got a Senate, for example, that is malapportioned to representing white rural voters. We have a house that's gerrymandered to overrepresent these same white rural voters. But we have a national electorate that looks less and less like the National Congress does. And so one of my questions, you know, when we talk about congressional dysfunction, uh, that uh, that I just mentioned. Well, one of my questions is how malapportionment in the national legislature uh, was created. I want to, you know, in, in sort of this half-baked second book project I've got, I want to look at uh, the rules for admission of western states, which has created uh, this Senate, which is biased towards western rural voters, uh, and I want to also talk about the history of gerrymandering and the census which has been used to, again, overrepresent rural districts pretty consistently throughout American history. So I want to kind of dig back, uh, dig, and then look at this uh, sort of history that uh, created uh, this uh, malapportioned and somewhat dysfunctional Congress that we've got today.
2: Well, I'm sure once you have that work done, we'll have you right back onto the program. But in any case, thank you very much for coming
1: on today. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, Derek.